October 1944, Terezin Ghetto, just outside Prague, Czechoslovakia, midnight. Kindergarten teacher Friedel Dicker Brandeis yanks an empty suitcase from a tiny closet. She quickly packs the suitcase, filling it, curiously, with children's drawings. Moments later, there's a knock at her door. Friedel jumps, uneasy. She slowly opens the door to confirm it's her friend and fellow teacher, Rosa Inglender. Was she followed? Rosa shakes her head no. Friedel quickly ushers her inside. Within seconds, both women resume packing. They shut one suitcase and grab another, filling it with dozens more drawings. Friedel glances around the room, shelves of art books, art supplies, easels. She wishes she could pack it all. Moments later, Friedel and Rosa skillfully tiptoe out of the room, each carrying a suitcase. Once in the hallway, they quietly pull down a set of stairs and begin to climb toward a tiny hidden attic in the ceiling. Working quickly as a team, Friedel and Rosa lug the suitcases into the attic and bury them under dusty old boxes of costumes and junk. They are careful not to alert anyone, for these suitcases are priceless. Seconds later, the women climb back down and silently close the attic stairs. Friedel embraces Rosa, relieved, even if uncertain. What matters most now is protecting those suitcases. If need be, even with their lives. I'm David Weil, creator and executive producer of the series Hunters on Prime Video. I was inspired to create the series because of my grandmother, Sarah Weil, a Holocaust survivor. When I was young, my Safsa started telling me the stories of her experiences during the war. To me, her heroism felt like the stuff of comic books and superheroes. During one of the darkest, most horrific periods in human history, there were ordinary people who made the choice to resist, standing up and fighting for the common humanity of their fellow people, doing what many of us would consider impossible. Hunters is inspired by the heroism of survivors like my grandmother and of heroes and resistors like these. The stories you're about to hear are true and the words and many of the voices you'll hear belong to the heroes, survivors, their families, and friends. This is Chutzpah. Hunters presents True Stories of Resistance. And this is The Angel. What if making art could be a form of resistance? Can something as simple as a painting or a drawing be an act of protest or a means to heal trauma? What if creating art could even help you survive? For Friedel Dicker Brandeis, bohemian artist and kindergarten teacher, art as both activism and healer became a core philosophy that drove her life. Amidst the darkness of the Nazi regime, Friedel saw into the eyes of the young Jewish children held in the Nazi camp known as Theresienstadt, or Terezin. She knew they desperately needed hope. So in December 1942, Friedel quietly begins discreet nightly art lessons for the children forced into this camp. Amidst harsh, overcrowded conditions, separation from their parents, and the brutal cold of a Czechoslovakian winter, Friedel creates a colorful, unlikely safe haven. 
As turmoil, disease, and uncertainty swirl around them, Friedel works to shield them from it, to preserve their innocence and protect their capacity for wonder and imagination. She refuses to let these children's lives be defined by trauma. Friedel helps these children find hope and healing via artistic creativity. Painting by painting, lesson by lesson, Friedel connects with these children, bonding with them and offering a creative outlet. These nightly lessons become an escape, a form of therapy. And above all else, Friedel instills a fierce belief within them that they will survive. Ella Weisberger, one of Friedel's students who survived Terrazin, speaks to this. We were taught from her to think about beautiful things in life, because inside Terrazin you couldn't see that, but you can imagine what will be. She gave us hope. Friedel's passion to protect children from turmoil was inspired by her own personal experience with childhood trauma. Friedel was born in Vienna, Austria in 1898 to a secular Jewish family. Her father, Simon, was Hungarian from the ungavar uzerod region, now known as modern-day Ukraine. Her mother, Karolina, was Czechoslovakian from the region of Bohemia, known for its unique traditions and unconventional lifestyle. Friedel grew up in a decidedly artistic family, one that embraced and valued art in all its forms. Art curator Misha Seidenberg for the Jewish Museum in Prague explains. She was able to develop her taste for art in a very early childhood, I would say. As a child of a storekeeper who was selling stationary goods, had tremendous access to all these art supplies and all kinds of fantastic materials. So very early, she became persuaded that artistic career was something that she was destined for, that she wanted to pursue in her life. Sadly for Friedel, her idyllic childhood ends far too early. Friedel's beloved mother dies when she is just four years old. To help her cope, Friedel's father encourages her to work through her grief artistically. He gives Friedel art materials, paints, art books, classes, to express herself and her feelings. As a teenager, she started puppet theater on the street for children in the neighborhood. And she started to do this artsy stuff a teenager kid would do. And at the same time, she convinced her parents, her father and her stepmother to let her to pursue the artistic career, to pursue an artistic career for a woman at that time, even in Vienna, was not something that was very easy that we would see every day. She had to pave her own road. She starts to study textiles at the Academy of Decorative Arts in Vienna. Artistically gifted, Friedel is selected to attend the prestigious German art school, Stadtliche Bauhaus. While at Bauhaus, Friedel trains under the renowned professor, Johannes Itten, who has a profound impact on her impressionable mind. Itten teaches Friedel and her classmates the radical notion that art is individualistic, an expression of one's own individuality and emotional freedom. 
he created this unique system of the preparatory course, how you can become more open-minded to the point that you reach the artistic creation that is entirely freed of any cliches and stereotypes. This is radical thinking, even within the artistic community. But Friedel flourishes in this dynamic environment, surrounded by famed gifted artists, including Vasily Kandinsky, Paul Klee, and Lionel Fenninger, all of whom shape and mold her opinions on the powerful role of art. It was all experimental. This is why Itan also was given the chance to basically experiment with the students, with the sound, with music, dance, movement, film, painting, design. It was a fascinating atmosphere in which all these people had a chance to grow as artists, and Friedel was one of them. Armed with this unique education, Friedel becomes far more free-spirited than her contemporaries, not just as an artist, but as a woman. Her vitality, high energy, and insatiable curiosity are nurtured in what becomes a fledgling artist's colony. In lieu of a traditional marriage, Friedel begins a passionate love affair with a fellow student, all while experimenting with her creativity and sense of self. Best friend and fellow artist Margit Terry Adler described Friedel as, quote, fully emancipated, the only one who went on and found her own individual identity. Unfortunately, Friedel's own artistic growth emerges just as geopolitical shadows constrict other basic forms of freedom. Post-World War I, Germany, Austria, and most of Europe suffers debilitating poverty and economic depression. In the immediate aftermath of the First World War, there was a lot of scarcity of food and the basics. So she struggled also as other students at the Bauhaus. She didn't have a rich family to support her, so she always needed to find her way to support herself. So Friedel decides to get creative. She joins with Bauhaus colleagues to open a successful interior design studio in Vienna. She also gets involved in the avant-garde theater movement. Yet again, as Friedel's artistry expands, the world around her closes in. Extreme nationalism explodes in Germany in 1930. The Nazi party is on the rise. Fear of invasion grips neighboring Austria. So Friedel, at age 35, becomes politically active. In 1930, she becomes close to the Communist Party of Austria. At that time, she is a fully engaged member of the underground communist movement. In 1932, the Nazis win a majority in the German parliament, and Hitler's power consolidates in Germany. Bauhaus, now labeled a breeding ground for Bolsheviks and Jews, is shut down immediately. Austria is under attack. The Communist Party goes underground, and Friedel's political activities are quickly curtailed. Within her close circle of friends, there is a fierce debate whether to flee Austria or to fight. For Friedel, this is not even a question. She has to fight. Crafting art posters directly challenging Hitler, Friedel painted on one protest poster, quote, 
This is how it looks, my child. If you don't like this world, then you have to change it. Friedel begins helping friends in the Communist Party hide their personal documents in her studio. She participates in underground resistance until she takes it a step too far. Art historian Elena Makarova explains. She forged the passports of anti-fascist movement people that wanted to run away from the country in the court. She only told that she had no idea what was in this iron box lying, and she had no idea. Despite claiming ignorance for her role in forging passports, government officials invade her art studio, and Friedel is arrested and thrown in jail. This affects her profoundly. Art curator Misha Seidenberg explains. She experiences something that she has never experienced before. She, for the first time in her life, loses her freedom. So that's really something that marks her very deeply as a person. While Friedel faces personal struggles, Adolf Hitler's brutal philosophy is quickly taking root in Austria. In December 1932, newly released from jail after four months, Friedel quickly evacuates Vienna for her own safety. Suddenly, she finds herself a political refugee with little more than the clothes on her back. Her studio in Vienna is ransacked and eventually burned to the ground. Friedel lands in Prague, joining many left-wing artists and political leaders. She doesn't know Czech. She doesn't have a job, but it's here in Prague that Friedel's activism fully merges with her art. Seeing the bewildered eyes of hundreds of displaced children, Friedel instantly empathizes. Remembering her own loss of her mother as a child and how art helped her deal with the trauma, Friedel begins teaching art classes at a kindergarten and then in refugee detention centers. Soon, She's running an entire children's program for young refugee children. She organizes first art lessons for children in those collective housing conditions, using art as a powerful tool and teaching children that are traumatized. She was that type of person responding to the immediate needs of people in distress, and especially children. Friedel sees firsthand the impact that fleeing their homes has on children. These children ripped from their daily routines, taken from secure environments of their homes and schools, suddenly feel uncertain about their future. Friedel begins to guide them, teaching them tone and texture, classic painting technique, even rhythmic exercises anything to distract them from their present trauma, just as her teachers had done when she was a child. One student in Prague, famed artist Georges Eisler, recalled to historian Elena Makarova how kind Friedel was. Friedel Dicker-Brandes encouraged us in a very unobtrusive way. I remember her warm-heartedness. There was something maternal even about her appearance. I remember that Friedel Dicker-Brandes was very present. It's at this time that Friedel also finds lasting love. She meets Pavel Brandeis through family in Prague. 
The two marry on April 29th, 1936, all as Hitler's rise to power continues. Friedel changes her name and surrenders her Austrian passport to become a Czechoslovakian citizen. Wanting to connect with her husband and his family, she immerses herself in the Czech culture and language. Suddenly, Friedel has the very thing she has longed for all her life, a big family. But just as life evolves happily for Friedel, tragedy strikes again. This time, it's not the loss of a parent. Instead, it's the inability to become a parent. Friedel is desperate to become a mother, but suffers infertility, including several miscarriages over several years. She becomes deeply depressed, surrounded by children, yet unable to become a mother herself. Despite she tried, and, but it, she miscarried. She wanted very much to have children, but then the reason starts, she had 650 children. So we never know about our fate. By 1942, Friedel's life was about to change again. She and Pavel are deported to a new Nazi ghetto in Czechoslovakia, known as Theresienstadt, or Terezin, as it was called in Czech. Terezin was what the Nazis called a, quote, public relations experiment, presented falsely to the world as a, quote, self-governing ghetto. This was the Nazis' attempt to shift focus away from the extermination of the Jews in Europe. As art curator and historian Misha Seidenberg explains. Theresien, or Theresienstadt was created as a transit ghetto, so people were not supposed to stay there for a very long time. When the Nazis attempted to create the facade of the ghetto even nicer, because they were already preparing for showing it off to the outside world and uh, shooting the propaganda movie and inviting the International Red Cross Committee, they all even promoted it as a spa town just to deceive the public opinion by creating this false propaganda picture of the Riesenstadt as uh, a self-governed Jewish settlement where the Jews were leading very peaceful and quiet life while the rest of the Europe is in the war. This propaganda by the Germans hid the true, awful nature of what was happening inside this transit camp. Friedel, however, is living the horrific reality of the situation. Friedel, seen through the eyes of an inmate, the squalor, the underbelly of all this propaganda, the everyday transports, all the scarcity of food and the lack of any medical supplies and treatment and so forth and so on. Now, what is important to say is that it was strictly forbidden to educate Jewish children under the Nazi rules. People lived under the close watch of German authorities. So in those conditions, it was very difficult to hide anything. And because it was strictly forbidden to educate Jewish children, it was extremely difficult also to organize the clandestine part of the teaching system. But Friedel, the bohemian artist, is undeterred. Even as others had packed their suitcases with clothing and valuables, Friedel had filled hers with art supplies. She anticipated needing materials for the hundreds of children she knew would be present. Sadly, her suitcase never arrives. It is lost in transit. 
After arriving at Terezin, Friedel sees that elementary school children are receiving little education. Children aged 14 and up are supposed to work with the adults, but younger children are warehoused in a dormitory separated by gender. They are separated from their parents and given little to do. So Friedel takes it upon herself to design art classes for these children. Joining with Willie Grog, the director of the dormitory, Rosa Englender, a fellow teacher, and Egon Redlich, the chief in charge of social care, Friedel plots to teach art to these children in the dormitories. Together with these like-minded individuals, Friedel decides to create a nightly offering of art classes, right under the noses of the Nazis. It was wholly brazen. The Nazis controlled terrorism. They, they did not allow for disobedience of their rules. And it's so utterly human, compassionate, and defiant. The only problem was, where would she get art supplies? Elena Makarova describes how she creatively found materials. There were different ways to find supplies. First was a graphic department where they made art. Second, it was still paper from the previous school in Theresien with all kind of drawings, in many drawings on the backside. Many people that she knew in Prague sent her parcels. Another student, Dita Kraus, describes how Friedel organized her classes. We were a group of girls in the girls' home who got tutoring from Friedel. She would come into the room where we were crowded, over 20 girls in a room, and invite us. Who would like to come in and paint? And several of us used to come regularly, and she coached us. She had, she had really lessons where she taught about color, how to distribute things we paint on the page, how to show distance, and so on and so on. It was a pleasant time with her. She was very kind, and she spoke in a, in a quiet voice, and uh, she always praised us. Friedel knew that her mission at Terezin went far beyond education. She needed to protect these children from despondency, offer them a sense of individual expression, and above all else, a feeling of home. Misha Seidenberg explains. You have the children who desperately need education, who desperately need housing, clothing, food. So how to organize this and how to provide under those conditions where you don't have the means. That really was a form of a resistance, coping with the desperate situation. Nobody knew what was going to happen. But the major narrative that they created was, okay, we need to create this specific system of organizing the children's life, providing the education to them, because that's the future for us. That's the future generation. Maybe somehow we will get out of this stronger. In the dormitories, Friedel taught classic drawing, sculpture, and painting, but also created a safe space for the children to be themselves. She encouraged them to release their internal fears, let them laugh with their friends, experiment with painting, and most importantly, focus on the future. Ella Weisberger, one of Friedel's students, speaks to this. 
She was so warm to us kids. And when you came to her room, there were flowers, paintings all over what she was doing in Terezin. She was different than anybody, really. Another student, Helga Kinski. We were not allowed to be taught, but we were taught secretly. I enjoyed very much her teaching, and I looked always forward to it. It was always a different material, what she just got. And she made us make collages. She would bring some flowers, I don't know from where she got them, and put in the middle of the table a teapot, a Dutch wooden shoe. And the next time she wanted the sunrise or what we dream about. Once she made us paint a market, she would make a noise on a table and we had to paint the rhythm. She made us really forget that we were in Terezin. Misha Seidenberg explains the larger impact of these lessons on the children's mental health. They were really exposed to things that many of their peers would never imagine. And they came very often from families that were very well established. And all of a sudden, basically overnight, they lost everything. So it was a very harsh and traumatic experience for them. And it was very important to gain control over this and to channel it and to turn it into something positive. What Friedel intuitively taught is what we now recognize as art therapy. Today, modern psychology recognizes art as a form of cognitive behavioral therapy to heal trauma and encourage emotional release. But that didn't exist in 1942. Acting on instinct and experience, Friedel's methods were ahead of her time. Art allowed the children to dream outside their surrounding horrors in prison. Art allowed the children to be, in one sense at least, free. Through it all, Friedel held out hope the children would eventually be saved. But time was running out. Terezin was only a transitory ghetto, meant to hold Jews before their impending transport to a concentration camp. Friedel is also painfully aware that by teaching these children, she's putting her own life at risk. Anyone who took creative license too far or defied Nazi orders suffered a brutal fate. We know about the so-called affair of the Terezin painters. There was an initiative of uh, several painters uh, who were using the supplies from the Technische Abteilung, from the technical drawing office that was basically established to produce the propaganda for the Nazis and all the charts, how productive the ghetto is. But they were also using the supplies and the material to draw the real face of the ghetto. And some of the drawings were smuggled out behind the walls of the ghetto. Then the chain was discovered. The Nazis called it the propaganda of horror. And they imprisoned the painters whom they held responsible for this, except for two, they all perished. So the consequences were very, very harsh and the risks and the stakes were very high for any sort of resistance. As mentioned, Terezin was only useful for Nazi propaganda. But when that propaganda outlived its usefulness, the Nazis returned to their ultimate goal, 
the extermination of the entire Jewish community. Even Terezin's most well-known export, the children's opera Brundibar, could not save its participants. Friedel was forced into making sets for the opera, which was again designed as propaganda. Daily, the children performed and rehearsed, learning songs to be performed in front of Nazi-controlled audiences. The entire opera was filmed and presented to the world to show deceivingly acceptable living conditions in the camp. But following the release of a propaganda film featuring the opera, the unthinkable happened. The Nazis brought those kids to the ghetto of the Riesenstadt, only to keep them there for a certain period of time. But at the end, all the children and their caretakers are taken away by the transport back towards the Eastern territories, and they're all killed, murdered. This was already in 1944, and we didn't believe that something very bad will still happen after the filming, but it did. Most of the children and the children in the audience went to gas. With death surrounding her, Friedel continues teaching the remaining students nightly, holding out hope they will all be rescued. In September 1944, Pavel receives a summons. He and 5,000 other men are being sent to the construction site of a new camp. Friedel begs Egon Redlich to allow her to go with Pavel, but she's refused. Pavel is deported from Terezin on September 28, 1944. Desperate to reunite with him, Friedel voluntarily signs up for the next transport. Even as colleagues Rosa, Willie, and Egon beg her to stay, Friedel insists she has to go with Pavel. Plus, how could she possibly stay behind when her students and their families were also on the transport? Before she leaves, she gathers all of her students' drawings and begins to pack them inside of a suitcase. Which brings us back to where our episode begins. Before leaving Terezin, Friedel strives one last time to honor the children she cared for. Risking her life in the process, Friedel preserves 5,000 pieces of art created by her students as one last act of resistance in the ghetto. While Friedel did not sign her own artwork, she always ensured that each child signed every single piece they created. Their name and age in print is proof that these children did exist. Friedel refused to let a single student's life be lost in obscurity. Even in the midst of her own fear, she has the presence of mind to preserve the children's artwork as proof of their struggle for survival. Little did she know, for many of the children, it would ultimately become all that remains of the proof of their existence. On October 6, 1944, Friedel Dicker Brandeis and 1,550 other residents of Terezin, most of them women and children, including 36 of Friedel's students, are deported. They're told that they're bound for a new labor camp near Dresden, Germany, to be reunited with their loved ones. Here again is Ella Weisberger. Friedel went 
I believe also in October 1944, and with her, most of the kids from my room. It went so fast in the children's home. It was like a turmoil. Can you imagine that all of a sudden we were four girls left from the 28th, and the teachers, everybody was gone. But within two days, the Terrazin residents on the train learn the truth. As they arrive at the station, they realize they were never bound for Dresden. In fact, they passed the city on the way to their real destination, Auschwitz. Three days later, on October 9th, 1944, Friedel Dicker Brandeis was murdered in the gas chambers at Auschwitz. She was 46 years old. Many kids wrote little notes, like today you would call it goodbye card. Nothing is left after those kids, only what Friedel saved. Her last painting, it was a child, and the eyes, you can see what she felt for children. So we lost somebody very important from our lives. 15,000 children passed through Theresienstadt. Approximately 90% of these children perished in killing centers. Yet during their lifetime, they attended school, painted pictures, made drawings, and otherwise tried to maintain a vestige of normalcy. Thanks to the determination of Friedel Dicker Brandeis and her colleagues. Friedel herself brought hope to over 600 children in her dormitory art classes. Even as she could not have children of her own, she took it upon herself to foster, teach, and care for hundreds of other children, inspiring them to dream, to use their imaginations, and to hope for a better world and a better future. Friedel didn't know if she could save their lives, but she knew that she could affect how they lived. Rather than reflect the darkness, she brought into their lives the light. Hope, expression, creativity, belonging, even if just for a little while. Her bravery was in that she continued to bring children to the condition where they can see the freedom and essence of life in spite of all. She sacrificed her own incredible art for teaching all the time. Friedel's students uniformly described the joy and hope she offered them amidst their struggle and how vital it was to them. First, Edna Amit. Everybody put us in boxes. She took us out of them. Erna Furman. Friedel's teaching, the time spent drawing with her, are among the fondest memories of my life. Friedel was the only one who taught without ever asking for anything in return. She just gave of herself and Ella Weisberger. She had always on her mind to take us out from the sadness and to give us hope that probably we will survive. Months after the war, word spread of Friedel's efforts and the priceless collection of artwork she preserved and left behind. In August 1945, with the war over, Rosa and Glender reminds Willie Grog 
about the suitcases of drawings. Tasked with remaining until the last evacuations, Willie Grog retrieves these suitcases and brings the children's artwork to a Jewish community center in Prague. And Willie was the last he stayed until September because he was responsible for delivering those children that were without parents to different countries. So Willie was one of the last who left Theresienstadt with these two suitcases. Colorful drawings and paintings with signatures of each child were uncovered, documenting Friedel's 600 students. Many of these children were otherwise unknown to historians, murdered in the gas chambers of Auschwitz-Birkenau, or starved to death at Terezin. Over time, people slowly began to realize the depth of Friedel's contribution. The children's artwork was lauded as, quote, diamonds in the crown of world culture by historians. Through each tiny piece of art, Friedel proved and celebrated the existence of these children as human beings with lives and imaginations and hopes and dreams, not simply as numbers on a list of casualties of a horrific war. A permanent legacy now remains of the countless lives of children lost during the Holocaust. We know some of their names today because of Friedel's brave decision to create and preserve their artwork. She gifted hope to her students, giving wings to their imagination during the most horrific moments of their lives. By preserving the artwork, Friedel also took her tiny classroom of artists and created a movement. Her painstakingly preserved children's artwork has toured around the world in countless exhibits and tributes. Today, it remains one of the best preserved collections of Holocaust documentation. It has even been adapted into an acclaimed theatrical play and musical called I Never Saw Another Butterfly, all of which underscores that her art and the art of her students was its own unique form of beautiful and powerful resistance. Friedel's student Edith Kramer sums up Friedel's incredible contribution. Friedel will speak to people for as long as there is paper and pastel chalk. That is all any of us can hope for after we die. That what one has made, what one has been, remains alive with one's fellow man. We honor the heroes of the past, heroes like Friedel, Dicker, Brandeis, by invoking their memory in the present. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed, and I am so excited for you to check out the series Hunters, streaming on Prime Video. If you're interested in learning more about Friedel Dicker Brandeis, please visit yadvashem.org, Y-A-D-V-A-S-H-E-M.org. Thank you to Yad Vashem, Liz Elsby, Mariah Films of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, the Museum of Tolerance, and Tall Fellow Press. Excerpts from Friedel Dicker Brandeis, by Elena Makarova, published by Tallfellow Press, Los Angeles. Copyright 1999. Used by permission, all rights reserved. And a special thank you to Dita Kraus, Elena Makarova, and Misha Seidenberg, as well as Rick Trank and Judy Friedman. 
bring you the biggest prize you could imagine. One more run. And everything that we have done will have been worth it. We can't do it alone, so where are your friends? Evil doesn't retire, so why should we? This has to be perfect, like clockwork. Join us. Hunters, starring Al Pacino. Executive produced by Jordan Peele. Stream now on Prime Video. This podcast was narrated by David Weil, creator and executive producer of Hunters on Prime Video. It was executive produced by Jordan Peele, Stephen Hine, Natalie Williams, and David Weil. Produced by Netta Farshbaff, Keisha Center, and Sophia Williams. This episode is written by Dorothy Kozak-Snoke. Voiceovers by Astrid Rottenberry, Alessandra Antonelli, Jan Close, and Marissa Krupp. Voiceover casting by Daryl Eisenberg and Ali Beans. Associate producers are Rebecca Drucker and Hayda Holscher. Post-production and co-produced by Trey Booty. The podcast featured the original theme and score from the second season of Hunters, written by Rupert Gregson Williams. Chutzpah, Hunters Presents True Stories of Resistance, is produced by Prime Video, Monkey Paw Productions, and Story Mill Media.